Psalm 139. Let's pray. Father, we need you now as we continue to worship you. It's been a delight to sing of your character and our response to bow our knee and bow our heart before you and to worship you as our ever-reigning King. Help us to do that even now in our study. In Jesus' name, amen. Disney's Magic Kingdom has a ride called Tomorrowland Speedway. It has gassed-up go-karts, and you drive around the track. But unlike other go-kart tracks, this has like rails that keep you on course. And so as you're driving around the track, you'll see people banging and then banging the other way, and then banging the other way. They keep on hitting the rail, and it's, it's just, it's, it's very disconcerting as you're, you're going along, and they're coming over at you, and then they, you see them go the other direction. Um, the design is, if, if you are steady and confident and, and skilled in your driving, you're not going to hit the rail. You're just going to drive around the track. But many people give themselves great headaches and even minor concussions by slamming side to side back and forth. Our kids used to like to go on that, and they liked to drive. So guess who ended up with the headaches and the concussions? My wife and me. Um, The long and the short of it is, no matter what happens, whether you're whacking the sides or not, you end up back at the finish line. They keep you on track. Like, you could even run out of gas, and eventually they would come because they want their go-kart to be riding again and they want that lane working again. They're going to get that go-kart to the finish line no matter what takes place. One of the truths that we come to realize as we study the Bible and as our lives unfold before us is that God is superintending over our lives Yes, we make choices and go in certain directions. And sometimes we hit the rails and give ourselves minor aches and pains. But as we hit the rail, there is a course correction. There's a course correction. There are variables, but ultimately God brings us to where we need to be. For some, this thought is maddening. For others, this brings about complacency. And for still others, knowing God's sovereign control over our lives results in peace and an ability to rest during times of difficulty. This morning, as we try to approach Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and it is a heavy task that we have, We want to try to cover it in three phases. First, a theological overview. Secondly, an overview of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And finally, a view of what God does and what God is calling us to do from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Are you ready? Roll up your sleeves. We have some work to do this morning. First, we're in Psalm 139, and I want to just make you aware, remind you of this truth, that God knows all things. God knows all things. 
He's never taken by surprise. Nothing you've ever experienced or have ever done or ever said came as a shock to God. Oh no! Now what will I do? God knows all things. Psalm 139 verses 1-4 through says this, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. That's called a merism, a a Hebrewism uh, that, that lets us know that God knows everything about our day, everything about our lives. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. God knows everything. Further, take a look at Psalm 145. We want to note that God rules over all things. Psalm 145, God rules over all things. Verse 13, we're just cutting right to the middle of this. If you want to fill it out later on, read the entire psalm of Psalm 145. But we're just cutting into verse 13 where the psalmist David writes, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion, that's that's sovereign rulership, your dominion endures throughout how many? All generations. The Lord is faithful in all His words and kind in all His works. God's dominion endures throughout every generation. God rules over all. Taking this a step further and more specific, God rules over kingdoms. We're not going to turn there. I want to just reference a couple of items. In Daniel chapter 2, you'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had this incredible dream. It was of this gigantic statue monument, and it was made out of different uh, materials. Eventually, Daniel gave Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation that showed a succession, a succession of kingdoms. God knew it before it had happened because God was going to bring it about. It's incredible. In Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17, God communicates through Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar these concepts. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowest of men. Verse 25 of the same chapter. That you may be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. That you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules, rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And then as you come to the end of the chapter, verse 32, he says this, And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. God is driving home a point to Nebuchadnezzar and through Nebuchadnezzar that not only does He rule over general things, He rules over specific rising and setting of kingdoms. God is sovereign over this. He rules over kingdoms. Next, God rules over weather. God rules over weather. You're already in Psalm 145. Take a right to Psalm 148 just for a moment. 
God rules over weather. Psalm 148, verses 7 and 8, the Bible says this, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind. Will you say the rest of it with me? Fulfilling His Word. Whose Word? Whose Word? Who controls the weather? Look a little further, please, at Psalm 147. Just take a left. Psalm 147, verses 15 and following. He, speaking of God, sends out His command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down His crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before His cold? He sends out His word and melts them. He makes His wind blow and the waters flow. Who controls the weather? God does. He is sovereign over kingdoms. Sovereign over weather. Look a little further, please. Back to Psalm 139 where we started. Psalm 139. God rules over birth and development. God rules over birth and development. This is of great importance. Particularly as one considers the, the unfortunate, demonic, barbaric ridiculousness that takes place in this country on a daily basis. As one considers the willy-nilly right to choose and kill babies, this should drive us, drive us to our knees. It should drive this country to repentance. Nonetheless, God is sovereign over birth and development. Look at what he says here in verses 15 through 18, excuse me, 15 and 16. Of Psalm 139. My frame, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intimately or intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You, your eyes saw my unformed substance. That has the idea of an embryo. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Think about this. God isn't just sovereign over the delivery of a baby. He is sovereign over the conception of a baby and its development embryonically through the the substance, the structure, the bodily skeleton of a baby. God is sovereign over birth and development. God not only rules over birth and development, He rules over death. He rules over death. Don't ever forget this, ladies and gentlemen. This is an important concept because so often we hear of people dying before their time. Humanly speaking, I agree. Like I, I don't want people to die at a young age. Probably, in some instances, don't want them to die at an older age. Some people, you think, boy, Lord, I'd really like it if you take them so they don't suffer anymore. But you know, we, we know how our mind works, our human humanality with these things goes, but nobody dies before their time. Look at what he says here in Psalm 139 and verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. Every one of what? The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Before we were even conceived in the womb, God knew how many days 
we would live. This is comforting to me. This is comforting to me. It doesn't mean we jump off of a cliff and say, oh, if, I, if, if I'm meant to die now, then I'll die. And if God doesn't want me to die, I won't die. It's, it's not that kind of a foolishness. It's about more when something happens that we, we wished we could have controlled, but we couldn't control, and the end result was death, and we look back and think, if only, I think about it with my brother, if only I had had my brother's back. If only I could have been there. If only I could have prevented him from doing what he did. If only I could stop this. The reality is, it's that or something else. The days are written before there was ever one of them. This is hard, but good news. Job agrees. Job says in Psalm 1, uh, excuse me, in, in Job 14, verses 5 and 6, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. So God rules over our life. God rules over our death. He is sovereign. This is essential, and it's essential to what we'll discuss in Ecclesiastes 3. God rules over the generation, excuse me, the Yeah, the generation and location of our life journey. God rules over the generation and the location of our life journey. Sometimes I contend with this. Lord, why didn't you make me one of the 18th century preachers? Because they would preach for two and three hours and people expected it and they were happy about it. Like, I really think I belong there. It would help everybody. Why why didn't you do that? But I know the Lord has me for this generation, so I need to learn to adapt. This is the way it is. Uh, The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, it's just an incredible passage from beginning to end, but we're just going to cut into verse 26. It says this, And he, God, made from one man every uh, nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having, listen carefully, determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. This is just incredible. Like, think about this. Here you are, Mr. America or Miss America, and you have laid your course out. You have done all the things that you needed to do to make yourself into this great place and, and come to this location in time. And, and All of your efforts have worked out and you realize as you, as you drill into the scriptures that, that God directs the course of your life from birth to death and everything in between. What does that do? What does that do? It does this. Are you ready? Yes, Lord. Yes, it's about you. It's about you. You have me. I'm yours. Do what you want with me. I'm a happy sojourner on the course to the end that you have for me. This is what it can bring into our lives. It can take the striving, the negative striving, away. It can take the turmoil of our inner man away. It doesn't, shouldn't remove our drive. It removes the anxiety of that drive. God rules over prosperity and adversity. God rules over prosperity and adversity. Head over to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. 
You'll find that on page 556 of one of our church Bibles. So we're entering into the book of Ecclesiastes now. God rules over prosperity and adversity. This is a great passage. We really should add verse 13 onto it, so we will. Verse 13 of Ecclesiastes 7, where Solomon writes, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. That phrase comes up a, numerous, a number of times in the book of Ecclesiastes. God is, keeps us kind of in a situation where we can't know how to predict how everything's going to work out. This also brings us to our knees. This places us, causes us, or should cause us to place ourselves under God's sovereign authority, His sovereign rulership. God rules over prosperity and adversity. God rules over times and seasons. We see this in Daniel chapter 2. You don't need to turn there. It'll be on the screen. Listen to what Daniel says. Or Daniel, uh, Daniel 2 says. He, God, changes, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God rules over our lives. That is the bottom line. Some people hate this concept. Some fight against it, denying it. Some come to find solace in it. I have. And I hope you do as well. Solomon shows some progression in his thought here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We did all of that background work, that overview, to prepare us for the progress of Solomon's thought in chapter 3. Head over to chapter 3, please. Actually, chapter 1. We're going to begin by comparing what he says in chapter 1 with what we we encounter in chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, look at verses 8 through 11. And I'll tell you, as he writes it, and his intention is to make a bleak outlook. A bleak outlook in chapter 1. Verse 8. All things are full of what? Weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. It's very dark, right? Bleak. Chapter 3 now. Chapter 3. Look at verse 15. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 15. That which is, already has been, and that which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Sounds like he's saying the same thing, doesn't it? But I want to tell you, I want to point out to you that this is actually a progression in thought. He is not just repeating what he said in chapter 1. He has framed it much differently. 
the context shows that Solomon has come to realize that God rules over all aspects of life, death, and eternity. So now let's take a quick overview of the flow of the chapter. Verses 1-8. through He tells us that God appoints times and seasons. Now, he doesn't say it that way. The context bears out that he is telling us that God appoints times and seasons. Take a look at verses 1 through 8. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep. And a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. God appoints times and seasons, and you see it, you you can feel it, you've you've been through these times, You've, you've, you've obtained something, and you've discarded something, you've seen someone you love born, and you've seen someone you love die, maybe you've been in the midst of war, and then you've seen the war come to a conclusion. You've seen these ebbs and flows. God appoints times and seasons. Secondly, man is involved in a not-for-profit business. He doesn't have to file any corporation papers for this not-for-profit business. But look at what it says in verses 9 and 10. What gain, what gain has the worker from all his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Man is involved in a not-for-profit business. Thirdly, God brings forth beauty through His work. This is, this is spectacular. God brings forth beauty through His work. Verse 11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done, what God has done from the beginning to the end. You're hearing this? What God has done. Man's busy. Man's busy. God has entrusted this work to him. He can't produce the profit. But in verse 11, we see God making things beautiful. God bringing forth a profit. God is accomplishing something. He's put eternity in man's heart to bring forth questions that he cannot answer outside of knowing God. God is he's, he's created within us this need for Him. This lack of knowing, knowing what to expect from Him. We don't know. Have you talked to someone that has died there are all kinds of books about this sort of thing. I'm not even going to broach it. I don't know what's going on with, with those things. Let me ask you this. Have you died? Have you seen what's on the other side? So there's some mystery, yes? Yes, there's mystery. Don't, don't fake it till you make it. There's mystery. You've never walked that pathway before. 
None of us have. We don't know what it looks like. Solomon agrees. He's trying to tease this out for us. Fourth, man should enjoy the gifts of God and do good. Two concepts there. Man should enjoy the gifts of God and do good. Verses 12 and 13. I perceived that there is nothing better for them, man, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. This is good. We'll come back to it, hopefully, if we have time. But God has entrusted to us this job. Enjoy the gifts. Enjoy the obtaining of gifts. Do good in the midst of it. That's what God tells us in both 1 Timothy chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 13. That we should utilize the things we have to do good. We should enjoy it and do good with it. Do good. Do good for others. Do good for people in the church. Do good for people outside of the church. Do good for your neighbors. Do good for those people that are willing to stand out in zero degree weather because they have no money. Yeah? There are some shams in these things. I don't suppose that the ones that are out in zero degree weather would qualify. What do you think? Do good. Do good. Number five, God's work brings eternal dividends. Verse 14, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. Wait a second. Wait, did I just hear that something is gain? Did you hear in Solomon's writing that there is something that is gain? Because he's been telling us and and pressing us that there is no gain under the sun. There is no gain under heaven. There is no gain from our work. There is no gain from our wisdom. There is no gain from our self-indulgence. But now he says there's gain. Something that endures forever. And guess what? You didn't do it. Solomon didn't do it. David didn't do it. Daniel didn't do it. Joshua didn't do it. Joseph didn't do it. God has done it. If something good takes place, it is solely from the hand of God. It is a gift from God. And what he does cannot be undone. What he does endures. There is gain. There is gain. It's going beyond the sun. It's seeing that there is a sovereign that rules over heaven and earth and all that in them is. God has done it. Therefore, it endures. Just like he said in verse 11, he makes everything beautiful in its time. And 
as we sneak just a little peek into the next, into the next portion, it says this strange thing at the end of verse 15. God seeks what has been driven away. And you say, uh-huh? <laughs> what? Well, the King James Version has it this way which gives good sense to it. I don't know that this is the exact and perfect way to see it, but it gives us a sense. God requireth, requireth that which is past. In other words, he's going to bring it to account, which is what he starts to talk about next. So there's a really good connection there. Another way to read it is this. God will right all the wrongs, which is kind of inherent to that King James Version translation of it. God will right all the wrongs. And I, that's how I would take that. God rights all the wrongs. God does things. What he does endures. There have been things going on from, from, from generations that God does. He's making things beautiful. And there are things that are not beautiful. But don't worry. He's going to make them beautiful. He's going, to, he's going to seek that which is blown away. He's going to seek the chaff. And he's going to make it Right. Good news. God will right all the wrongs. This is number six. And we, we transition from verse 15 into verses 16 and 17 where he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that which, excuse me, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. So we're seeing that God will right all the wrongs. And let's just touch it just for a moment. And I don't want to dive in too much. I don't want your mind to start swirling in a different direction than where we need to be heading. But I think in verse 16, we see some very clear allusions to some things that go on today. In the place where there ought to be justice, there is wickedness. I will again refer you to Roe versus Wade. Yeah? And many other elements. And then, in the place where there ought to be righteousness, even there is wickedness. And we know all the scandals that take place in, in places that call themselves churches. It's sad. We could spend all of our time worrying about these things, or we can pay attention to what Solomon is trying to tell us. God will bring it to account. Verse 17, I saw in my heart, I said in my heart, God will judge, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. As we get to verses 18 through 21, this is, this is the strangest um, wording that you'll see of, of one of my sermon points, is musing, musing, contemplation upon the eternity or destiny of man versus animals. Musing upon the destiny of man versus animals. We're going to read the text, and then we're going to try to think it through just for a few minutes. Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts or animals. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. That word breath is used in Genesis 6, 17. Same word when God is taking the breath from animals and beings, meaning they died. They both have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts 
For all is vanity. All, all go to one place. All from one, excuse me, all are from dust, and to dust they all return. This is an interesting question you ask here. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Oh, wait a second, Solomon, you've turned a negative corner. I thought I was feeling pretty good, weren't you? And now he throws this thing at me. It's like, all right, you know, you've been to those funerals, right? Sometimes there's a casket, sometimes there's an urn. What's the difference? Nothing, because they're all going to dust. One might go in a wall, one might go on a mantle, one might go in the ground. The, the reality is, the, 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 the entity there is now dead, and their corpse will rot. I know this is probably tender for some of you, and I don't mean to be taking this lightly at all. It's the text, and so we have to deal with it. The same thing happens with your dog, cat, fish, Bird, gerbil, go down the line. They all go back to dust. They're going to die. And how do you know, how do you know that that beast dies and that's the end of it, but yet you die and you go up? How do you know? Have you been there? Have you been there? Solomon asked that question. Man doesn't know what happens after him. He brings it up several times. What's going to happen? You say you know what's going to happen. Do you really know what's going to happen? How do you know? But Solomon has already couched this, and he couches it again, with, with a more positive flavor than how I just described if we were to take that, those passages in isolation. Do we know how Solomon really feels about what he brings up in this section? Well, look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put what? The word, the Hebrew term is olam, endless life. He has put eternity into man's heart. Does does Solomon think you're going to go into the ground and die like a dog? He doesn't. He's already told us. Look at verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Well, well, if we just go into the ground, what's, what's what's about the judgment? What's that all about? He's already told us he doesn't think this way. He's talking again about this earth's perspective. How do you know? Look at chapter 12, just for a moment. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7 for a moment. He's going to answer this question for us in that passage. He says, And the dust returns to the earth, that's your body, as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. What does Solomon think about this? Do we know what he thinks? So he hasn't left us in this, this quandary. Well, I think that Solomon is having a crisis of faith here. He's not. He's writing a book about his ponderings. He lets you into the pondering so you can feel what he felt and examine what he examined. But he also gives us some answers to unbury us from the depression. There is more. He muses about the destiny of man versus animals. And then he concludes the chapter by, with this. This is how we... We're going to categorize it. Man should rejoice in his work under his sovereign ruler. Verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. 
That is his lot. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? There is nothing better for you as a person to rejoice in your work. That is your lot. The word there is portion. And in other places, it's translated inheritance. You've inherited your part. Well, this, he's been telling us about this in the book. That God has granted you a job. In chapter 1, in verse 13, he paints it very negatively. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Chapter 3 and verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Chapter uh, 3 and verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than for a man to rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Well, what do you mean that's my lot? Well, verse 11. He has made, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. You're not changing history, friends. Your job is to do what God has called you to do. Be who God has called you to be. Don't look for something more and don't come up with something less. Be who God has made you to be. That is your lot. You should be busy. You should be busy about what God has called you to To be, be satisfied, take pleasure in what God has called you to be. I thought right now I would be X, Y, or Z. No! Be who God has called you to be. He appoints times and seasons. He makes everything beautiful in its time. God is the one who does a work that endures forever. And he's given you a part. Do your part as a contributing member of his call. So, is Solomon's statement in chapter 3 and verse 15 pessimistic? Verse 15 says, That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. Is it pessimistic? Or has his thought process demonstrated a progress. I think he has demonstrated a progress. Instead of looking at things just from this this earthly level and saying, oh, same thing, different day. Same thing, different day. Same thing, different day. Same thing, different day. What am I really accomplishing? What is the gain? What is the gain? Why am I doing this? He says here, yeah, things do stay the same. I I can't change the world. What God has done, it endures. God makes things beautiful. He has given me seasons and times of life. Come underneath it. Hey, get a burger. Hey, get a a cherry Coke. Hey, if you go to Five Guys, get one of those peanut butter shakes. It's delicious. It's outstanding. Eat and drink and be merry. Be joyful. Be joyful. Not this, tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, and be merry because this is a gift from God. You're enjoying the fruit of labor. Labor, work hard. Go plow the field. Go pick the stuff. Harvest it. Enjoy it. Eat some of it. Sell some of it so you can have some money. Go on a vacation with your family. Enjoy it. Don't spend all your money on vacation. You won't have enough money for your bills. Don't squander it all on yourself. You won't be able to help other people. 
Make sure you give some to the Lord or else you'll be a hoarder. You'll you'll be a friend of the world instead of a friend of God, James chapter 4. You'll be covetous. God's not going to grant you things so you can consume it upon your own lusts. But enjoy the things he's given you. It's good. It's good. Solomon's tune has changed. He says things come and things go, but it's all right. God is doing it. What God does endures forever. Let me just do my job. Let me just do my job and enjoy the journey. Some parts of the journey hurt. You felt it. But that's not the whole journey. If you want to focus on all the the pain, you're just going to have some real problems. You're going to be a bummer of a person to be with. How about know this? There's a day of reckoning. And all the wrongs will be made right. It's coming. So, eat a piece of pepperoni pizza. Stop eating the kale. Listen, if you give me a bag of chips, make sure they're not kale chips. Or beet chips. Come on now, beet chips. What's the matter with you? I'm only kidding, obviously. If you want to give me some beet chips, I'll give them to my son. He loves them. He appears, Solomon, appears to be suggesting that we embrace what God does while doing our part with joy, fear, reverence, and expectation. Joy we see in verse 12 and verse 22. Fear we see at the end of verse 14 so that people fear before him. And expectation, verses 15 through 17, where the judgment comes and God will right all the wrongs. Got it? He's suggesting we enjoy what God, embrace what God does while doing our part with joy, fear, and expectation. Now, I'm going to take a couple more minutes. Just a couple. You with me? A couple more minutes. I want to see this chapter again. Just going to list the things that God does and the things that God asks us to do. It's very simple. It's a simple task, but very important for us. First of all, what God does. He appoints times and seasons in verses 1 through 8. We already read it. I'm not going to read it again. But I do want to make this application of it. When we see that God appoints times and seasons, we can see it very clearly displayed and exemplified in the life of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to these three verses. They'll be on the screen. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time, time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. God caused Jesus to come at just the right time. In the midst of Jesus' sojourn, there were people that wanted to kill him. But not not at the wrong time would God allow that. In John 7, 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And what we see in the book of Romans, chapter 5 and verse 6, for while we were still sinners at the right time, God died or Christ died for the ungodly. You can see the, the, the birth and death manifestation of God's authority and sovereign rulership just in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it exemplified. Not only does God appoint times and seasons, He gives man the business of life. Verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man. Third, He makes all things beautiful in its time. We've talked about that. Oh. You've seen the beauty of a restored relationship. You've seen the redemption of a soul, your own. Oh, man. Can you, can, you, can you just imagine what is still to come? 
Can you just imagine? <laughs> when you st stand face to face with your Savior, what will that be like? <laughs> Beauty, just, it's just not a good enough word, I don't think. God has also put eternity in man's heart. Listen to this. I quote from Philip Ryken, who is quoting C.S. Lewis, okay? But I included him because that's where I, the source is. No one has ever explained the implications of our longing for eternity better than C.S. Lewis, who said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest a real thing. The sweetest thing in my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. Elsewhere, he describes this longing as the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard news from a country we have never yet visited. He's placed eternity in our heart, and he's causing us to have this longing for this great fulfillment. We call it the consummation, the consummation of all God's plans of the ages. It will be the most glorious experience, and we can just opine about it muse about it, read the, the snippets that God gives us, and are you a believer? You can feel some of it. You can feel some of it. Because God has given to you His very own Spirit as a foretaste, a down payment of the glories of heaven, which is when you're walking in the power of the Spirit and you're worshiping God in song or worshiping God in the study of the Word. You can feel your whole body. You can feel your whole inner man is just lifted. You can feel the burdens of the light, this life peel away. You can feel the joy of heaven entering into your world. We just have this foretaste. The best is yet to come. Can you feel it? I hope you can. God gives the gifts of enjoying life in verses 12 and 13. He makes unshakable decrees in verses 14 and 15. He will judge the righteous and the wicked in verses 16 and 17. God is testing man to see if he can develop more purpose than animals, verses 18 through 21. This is God is doing this. What is God calling the reader to do? Well, it's very easy. Number one, be joyful. Be joyful. Verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful. Secondly, to do good. And to do good, verse 12, and to do good as long as they live. Not, not one deed, not a deed for a week, not, not a month worth of deeds, not six years worth of deeds, not 60 years worth of deeds, not 65 years worth of deeds, not 70 years worth of deeds, not 75 years worth of deeds. All the days of our lives. You don't ever retire from serving God. You may retire from a particular portion of ministry, but your ministry continues. Your life in service to God continues. And we've seen that exhibited in so many of the saints that are part of this church. And for them, I say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for exemplifying that you serve all of the days of your life, doing good 
Thirdly, to eat, drink, and take pleasure in the journey and its product, verse 13. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Fourthly, and this is really important, fear before our sovereign God. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. I want you to know, I want you to understand what fear of God is. Fear of God is not, I'm terrified. Oh, the judgment's coming. Oh my goodness, what will I do? For the believer, there is no condemnation. So I don't fear God that way. Fear of God is recognizing that He is the sovereign ruler. He's couched it beautifully. He's given us the, the, the idea that God is doing a work. Come underneath Him. Come underneath Him. Be a part of what He's doing. God has all these plans and purposes. They'll all be done with or without you. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He'll get the job done. Probably better without me. He'll get it done. But He, he can use you. Come underneath His sovereign care. Come underneath His sovereign authority. He deserves that. It's right for us to place ourselves under Him. He is the, the Lord of glory. So humble yourself before Him. Place yourself under His care. Fifthly, rejoice in your part. Verse 22, So I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. There's one other item. He doesn't state it as a command. He doesn't state it in the... In the in a particular way, but I think we have to pull this out of this. I think it's, it's essential to see this. Last item, God, our requirement, what is God calling for us? Be ready for the day of judgment. Be ready for the day of judgment. And to verse 15, God seeks what has been driven away. God will right all the wrongs. God requireth that which is past. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time, a time for every matter and for every work. He's, he's tied this up beautifully. For everything there's a season, there's a time, while well, there's also a time for judgment. You don't have time to turn there. I have it on the screen. Paul said the same thing to those that heard him at Athens on Mars Hill. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Listen carefully to what he says. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people, all people, everywhere to repent. Why? Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Who is this man? And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him, that man, from the dead. Who is this judge to whom we will give an account? His name is Jesus, or Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus Christ. Is Jesus. Jesus will judge me. Jesus will judge you. There is a day. It's appointed. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. You will stand before Jesus, your judge. And the impression that I get from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, and you will look him in the eye, face to face, and you will give an account. Can I remind you? 
could I please remind you that this judge is the one who offers to be your savior? This one that you'll stand before and look dead in the eye to give an account of yourself to is willing to have taken all of your sin away, taken it upon himself to be judged for your sin. He's willing to grant to you the righteousness that he accrued as he perfectly obeyed his Father and the law of God and the law of man. He's willing to grant to you that righteousness. So when you stand him, stare him in the eye, you stand before him, instead of being dressed in your shabby, dirty, sinful garments, you could stand there in his perfect, righteous, white garments. And your judge knows that his merits have been granted to you and that you are one of his redeemed treasures that he has made beautiful in his time. Yeah? But that's only if you turn from your sin. Repent. Repent. There's a point at a time. Repent. Everyone, everywhere, repent. Turn to Jesus. Turn to him for salvation. You can receive from him forgiveness of your sin, righteousness that will be required at the day of judgment. You can be prepared for the day of judgment. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. The judge is the Savior. The question is, is he your Savior? Are you prepared for the judgment day? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is tremendous. We could exhaust this more. We're going to leave it here, but I have given you plenty of ammunition to read on it more yourself, to study it more yourself. There are some extra copies of my notes on the countertop in, in Lynn's office. Feel free, take it so you can ponder through some more. But the concept here is God governs our lives from birth to death and everything in between. Enjoy the journey He has granted to you by looking to Him and knowing what He has in store for you. Let's pray together. Father, You're good. We, we're thankful. Do Your work in us. In Jesus' name, Amen.